Well, hello everyone, Scott here. Uh, this episode is going to be a little bit different because of kind of a confluence of events where I had three people lined up, one of them had to back out, and then there was two. And then while I was chatting with one of the guests, waiting for the second guest to arrive on the recording, we realized he wasn't coming. But as it turns out, the one guest that I did have is someone who has a very interesting life story, um, a, a kind of a second life story in a way. His name is Alistair Henry, and I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not going to give the usual intro that kind of tells you what sort of things he's done in life, because he's going to kind of tell us that as we go along. I think he has a really interesting story to tell, and I think you guys will enjoy it. So without further ado, let's hear Alistair's story. In the old days, people all the time talked, shared stories, told stories, but today we're too busy. We... You know, we just meet and move on. We don't really delve into anything. So you really don't share. And what we find is after we do that, people are they're motivated to share their story. And uh, it gets a very rich conversation. And you get to know everybody a lot better because you've shared and bonded. It's uh, almost magical <laughs> the way it happens. It's definitely interesting when you, when you learn about somebody else and how different you know you you sort of you're you're everybody's sort of focused on themselves because of course right you're the main character in your story but you hear somebody else's and you realize wow their experiences are so different than mine and i think you just sort of assume that everybody kind of has the same type of thoughts and you know as you yeah and, and that's not not the case yeah everybody has a history you know we've got a whole lifetime different journey so you come together and uh, if you can draw on your experiences and share, it's really interesting. So what do you want to do? You want to give him a shout or text well, him? Well, I sent him a message. He didn't respond. So we'll, I think what we should do is we should do just what you were just talking about. We should, we should share some stories with each other and learn about each other. And ah. we'll do that. How about that? I mean... I was looking at your your website a little bit, and you have quite the life story. <laughs> yeah, I know. And you know, nothing really happened until I retired. I was like 60. I mean, much older than you. Sure. I just led your normal life, you know, family, corporate guy. And then when I retired, because I could, I retired at 57, because I worked so hard, I was very... Um, career-driven, you know, really productive. At the expense of my personal life, I must say, you know, I realize that now, upon reflection at the time, you don't know that because, you know, you're in that state of mind, you think this is what success is, you know. Mm -hmm. But everything happened after that. And the, the strange thing was, I, I, I got a chance to retire to a beautiful place in the country, 50 acres, Five ponds, 18 acres of bush, lots of nature, a river running through the property with trout in it. Lovely, ideal. But it wasn't, it wasn't satisfying. And I had, to, and I asked myself, is this it? And why wasn't it satisfying? I felt empty. I didn't feel fulfilled. I just thought, is this it? All I'm going to do now is play golf and cut grass for the rest of my life. There's got to be more to life than this. And I think the reason, Scott, was because I was so used to being a high achiever. Yeah. To actually stop and not achieve anything, it, it you know, it was traumatic. Mm -hmm. I struggled with it for a, about a, a year. And as I say, I was asking myself, is this it? Is this all there is? And if I'd have said, yeah, well, you know, I'll... You're in a wonderful state. You've got this wonderful retirement. You know, you can just put your feet up. You've earned it. That would have been the end of it. And I wouldn't have known anything else, eh? Yeah. But I didn't. I said, no, there's got to be more than this. I need, I, need, I need to feel alive, you know? I need a sense of adventure. Yeah. And I, I need to, to find what fulfills me. Because, and, wh and what I realized later upon reflection was people. That's what I learned, Scott. In mm -hmm. the corporate world, I was an accountant. I was a, you know, chartered accountant. Sure. It was all about 
boardrooms, meetings, budgets, reports, all that stuff. Not really. Even my colleagues, they were just colleagues, you know. I, I, I didn't have any really deep relationship with any of them. We, we just went to work. Yeah, you had lots of acquaintances and yeah. people you were friendly with, but not yeah. close connection, yeah. So I got thinking about it, and I didn't want to go back into the corporate world. I thought, man, I've been there, done that, you know. Didn't want to go back to the city. I love the country. Yeah. So I, I went to live with a small First Nations band on the east arm of Great Slave Lake in Canada's Northwest Territories. Yeah, and so First Nations, for, for people listening who might not know what a First Nations band is, what does that mean? In Indians, what do you call them? I mean, so like native native people, maybe, is what you say, right? Native people, right? That, yeah. Yeah, that might be another way to say it, yeah. Some okay. people might call them Indians, sure, yeah, yeah, what they used to call them, yeah. But yeah, yeah so, so, right. so sort of a native people, yeah. Well, in Canada, yeah. we've, got, uh, we've got the native people that mm-hmm. we're, we're now called, we recognize, we call them First Nations. First Nations, They were here yeah. first. Which makes sense. Yeah. yeah. They were here before we got here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you've got the Inuit, which we used to call Eskimos, right? Right, right. Which are different than the First Nations. The Inuit and the First Nations yeah. are different people. Yeah. The the Inuit li- live on the north coast, on the Arctic Ocean. Okay, yeah. And they're all to do with um, seals and whales. They, they live on the ocean. Uh, yeah. The Indians, or the First Nations, live on inside Canada all across sure, that you know. makes sense yeah and you said they came here before us but um, clearly from your accent you came here from somewhere else as well didn't you um, yeah I came from England yeah <laughs> yeah yeah when you were what 19 or something you said I think yeah that's right yeah when I was 19 and then you've been in Canada all since my then life. yeah all your life yeah so you feel like a Canadian now not a Oh yeah, Brit. Or oh. what would you what would you consider yourself, Canadian? Yeah, Cana- Canadian. Yeah, Canadian. But you still got the accent. <laughs> well, it's weird, you know. I picked this accent up when I was uh, fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, and it just stuck with you. Yeah. Yeah, because actually, I was born in Scotland. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, sure. And I only went to Bolton, Lancashire, where this this is my accent. Yeah. When I was um, when I was five, so. From five to nine, I was there for fourteen years, which yeah. I think is uh, typically kind of the age where you sort of yeah. pick up an accent like that. Now, some people yeah. it'll change when they get older if they move somewhere, but I think yeah. a lot of times, kind of a lot of that is that age in there where you're learning to talk well and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the funny thing is when I go when I go back, I can hardly understand my brother-in-law. Sure, sure. And they probably think that you don't have a British accent anymore, right? Oh, no, right? they think I'm, oh, no, they hear the Canadian. You sound, too Can- yeah, Weird, exactly. Eh? Yeah. Yeah, but to an American, you sound British, so. Yeah. So I went to this little community, only yeah. 300. Uh, in Canada, there are 630 different First Nation tribes, if you like. Mm-hmm. And Canada is a big country. Uh, most of them weren't even aware of each other, Right because they settled somewhere. Uh, so they've all got lots, they've got their own culture, dances, songs, um, myths, you know, creation myths. Anyway, so I went to Lutz OK. I, I went there to manage the development corporations. Hmm. So you kind of went there for a job. This wasn't sort of a random place that you moved to? No, I was hired. Yeah, okay. Okay. As the general manager of the development corporations, uh, diamonds were discovered in 1992 mm. in the Northwest Territories. Mm-hmm. BHP Billiton was already there. Uh, so was Rio Tinto. And mm-hmm. uh, part of this job was to help the band negotiate with De Beers some agreements, a participation agreement and... Uh, contribution agreement and that's what really excited me about the position so I went to Lutz okay but everybody was so friendly the thing is you got 300 people they're all related and I was an outsider right I was gonna say was there any resistance to you coming no. in as an outsider 
Nah, there was a little bit of discrimination. I mean, I was referred to as whitey, you know. But I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't bother me, you know. I was the white guy. Yeah. yeah it's okay. But they invited me to their uh, homes for celebrations. Tommy invited me to check out his trap lines one Sunday afternoon. I went fishing with Johnny. and Oh, it was wonderful. And that's when I realized, you know, I enjoy people. I really, I, mm-hmm. but I'd been deprived of that. Yeah, I went into the corporate world at a very early age as an accountant, and I, I, I was just kind of discovering about myself. You know, man, I, I really enjoy people, and there was things I could do for them because people in Lutz okay. There was no bank in Lutz okay. There was one grocery store. There wasn't even a coffee shop. <laughs> There's nothing. And and so they, some of them had bank accounts, but in Yellowknife, but they needed to fly to Yellowknife. And that was like 250 bucks, you know, round trip. So you just couldn't go to Yellowknife. So a lot of it in the community was cash. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is probably, is this pre-internet? Is this before you can kind of do everything online? No, but it was early internet okay. and the uh, internet was really unstable huh, in the uh, Sure, sure. Day. Yeah, I'm sure out in, out in the, so because nowadays it seems like, well, why would you need to go to the bank, right? <laughs> you could just do everything online oh, yeah. with your phone. Yeah. But this would have been before yeah. you could just easily do everything on your phone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the development corporations uh, hired people. I, I ran a couple of fire crews out of their fire base up near the airport. And other people I sent on planes to the mines as janitors, customer, catering staff. Yeah, so I had a payrolls. So one of the things what I, it just, it just happened. I bought a tent and some sleeping bags in Yellowknife for somebody. And I said, okay, no problem. I'll just take it out of your pay, okay? Sure. Payroll deduction. I mean, I, I couldn't, it was a no brainer. Well, then other people came said, hey, can you do that? Can you do that? And I realized, you know, I I can help people. I have something specific. They don't have a visa card. I do. That's powerful. And when I helped them, that's when I thought, this is where my fulfillment comes from. And I was helping them in other ways, just with advice and, you know. And the other thing is, I went into Luto Cares, this businessman, with all these best business practices, you know, uh, that didn't work up there. Because mm-hmm. although they were Canadian, it was like a different world. It was like going to the moon. Totally different culture. They'd never been conditioned in the sort of North American mindset. They, they just lived in the moment. They didn't worry about next week. They didn't worry. They just... they. they they just took it all in their stride, whatever, you know, whatever seemed to be their philosophy. And I loved it, and, and I realized that in the corporate world, I was always multitasking. I, I never really stopped and enjoyed anything. I was always so busy. You know, I had a meeting, 10 o'clock or 3 o'clock, Joe's coming in, then i got to do this, i got to write this report. And I realized I was just going through the motions for most of my life in the corporate world without really savoring. And here with these simple people, you know, they just lived in the moment. A good, beautiful day, they decided what to do. Like I'd line up some guys for work on Friday, and Friday had come and they wouldn't be there. I said, oh, I'm working on my snow machine. So I would just drive around town, rolling my window down and say, hey, Bill, you want to work today? And Bill would need some money. I said, okay, hop in. He'd jump in the back. And I always found what I needed, you know? It's weird. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember Kenny said to me, he said, you know the difference between you and me, Al? You live off your paycheck. I live off the lands. (laughs) And I said, yeah, that's so true, Kenny. And the other thing would be, you know, like at the beginning of the day, I was, uh, here's the objectives. This is what we're going to accomplish today, you know. Here's the expectations. And then at the end of the day, I have a little wrap-up, you know. I'd say, well, it was a good day, but we didn't do this. And they'd look at me and say, 
why are you talking about what we didn't do? Why is that important if we didn't do it? I say, you know, you've got a point. So from that point on, there was no regrets about what we didn't do. Uh, and, and it was made it so much happier and lighter and joyful, you know, <laughs> weird. And you may have gotten less done with that oh. approach, but but does it matter? Yeah. You know? Who cares? Yeah. yeah, probably not. So I had uh, I had these contracts from the government, from the Canadian government, to run these fire crews. We had a little fire station, a little base up near the airport. And we hired two crews of eight, six, 16 people. And uh, so we, we're going to start like next Monday. So I'm having this meeting with them and I'm saying, okay, here's what... Here's the deal, guys, you know, we get paid on the 1st and the 15th, okay? Okay. Well, the day after the first day of employment, someone came into my office and said, can we get an advance? It's like, you've got to be joking. You know, I'm not going to give you an advance. I got Everybody's going to want an advance, right? Get out of here. So a couple of days ago, then they come back and say, you know, we're really out of diapers for the little guy, you know. And there were so beseeching stories that I started to make exceptions. Uh-huh. And then it dawned on me, you know, I thought, you know, they've worked. They've earned the money. Who am I to say I'm not going to pay you till the 1st and the 15th? I mean, what gives me the right to say that? Mm-hmm. That's just an administrative thing from my world where we hold, we don't pay, you know. So, the only problem was, though, the co-op only had so much money, like the co-op store. Sure. Right. So, when, when they got checks, they took them to the co-op store to be cashed. Otherwise, they're left with these checks. That are kind of worthless, otherwise, right? If well, you can't yeah, they can't them. get to the bank in Yellowknife. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. So, I started to bring in huge amounts of cash, <laughs> and uh, I did it in my office, you know. And when they couldn't get the check cashed, I'd say, "Okay, Joel, leave the check with me, okay? Can you come back at four o'clock?" Well, then I'd put the money in an envelope or whatever, and I say, yeah, I just happened to be able to do this today. Right, right. This is the only money I have, right? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want everybody to know I had a lot of money. Right, of course not, yeah. yeah. Well, even bringing it in on the plane was a bit of a risk, you oh, know? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, I had to get people I trusted to go to the bank and uh, bring in a satchel. Anyway, cut a long story short. After two years in Lutz okay. I thought this, you know, I'm I'm not going to be here for the rest of my life. I'm not Denny. I'm not an Indian, you know. Sure. But sure. it felt like a long time. I couldn't even remember what I did before I went there, you know. <laughs> time, time yeah. it's such a strange concept, eh? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I thought, okay, what I want to do is really help people. So I I went to Dhaka, Bangladesh. I volunteered with a small NGO in Dhaka, Bangladesh setting up microcredit programs in uh, rural villages and coastal villages and I was there for two years so how'd you end up how'd you end up going like why there of all places how'd you end up yeah. at Bangladesh right I mean there's a lot the, the world's big <laughs> well somebody told me about an organization out of England called VSO VSO okay volunteer service overseas and somebody said you know I think they'd be interested in your background so I contacted them, applied, and they said, oh, I'd love to have you. How about, would you like to go to Dhaka, Bangladesh? <laughs> and I didn't care where I went. It was, you know, it was an adventure. Did you know so anything went. about Bangladesh, really, before you went there? Had you no. been there before? Oh, God, no, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I kind of vaguely know where it is. That's about the extent of my knowledge, so yeah. I was 62 when I went there, and then they said, but you have to learn to speak Bangla. They, they tell me this after I arrive, right? I said, you've yeah. got to be joking, you know? So I went to all these lessons, but they were all interrupted because there were strikes and protests. and sure, So sure. I only attended about half the lessons. But it was okay because um, where I was working in Dakar, they were learning English and they wanted me to speak English. But I could still remember some... Uh, and sure. 
Bang- Bangla is a it's a simpler language. Is it okay? Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bala balo means good. You know. Balo means good. Okay, there you go. Balo, now I know some yeah. Bangladesh. <laughs> yeah. So when I went to work, everybody would say, "Kim on, Kim How are you, Kim on Really means how is it going? You know. Sure. But yeah. You pass one desk, they say, "Kim on in Canada, we say lots of stuff. You know, what's up? How's it going? But everybody just said, Kim on And my answer was, Ami Balo Achi. Ami Balo Achi. I'm fine. And they smiled. Yep. <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> yes, I had a good time. Yeah, sounds like it. So you made lots of good connections there as well, it sounds like? Yeah. With people? I, I learned a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a real experience because I had to flag down a rickshaw to take me to work. You know, sure. I, yeah. I lived at the same level as my, so I learned to be very minimal, minimalist. I had to I'm learn, sure, yeah. live at the same level, really. And even the washroom, you know, there was no toilet bowl there. There's a bloody hole in, and I had to squat. So, so this is a this is a far cry from your uh, what fifty acres with five oh, ponds, yeah. and I mean, quite. And extreme. this has only been a couple of years difference, right? Yeah. I mean, you were a couple of years in the the First Nations. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. So quite, that must have been a big shock. But you know, with an open mind, I was thriving on adventure. It's like bring it on, you know. Right. And then yeah. I realized, man, how little you need to live, and you know, okay, just you know. So I, I did. I, I mean, I, I learned to squat and have a poo. Yeah. 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 And, and it just sure. became normal after a while. That's weird. Interesting. And so how long were you in Bangladesh then? For two years. Two years there too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then decided to move on because you weren't going to stay there forever, just like the First Nations place? It was a two-year contract. Yeah. Oh, it was a two-year contract. Okay. So they, they were done with you. They wanted to get rid of No. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. No, I did my job. A lot of those things, they get funding. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was funded for a couple of years and then, yeah. Yeah. And then that's it. So I came back to Canada and I should have been going to Rwanda. That was my next assignment to a hospital in Rwanda. With the same organization or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, there was another situation. My daughter wanted to go back to school. Mm -hmm. Um, It's tragic. She'd lost her husband. Mm -hmm. He, He fell down some steps, cracked his head. Ooh. Went, went into a coma and died. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. And she had, she had three children. Okay, yeah. And uh, she wanted somebody, she, was, she wanted to go back to school because she said, I've got to provide. She was a stay-at-home mom. But now she realized she has to go and provide for her family. But she was concerned because she had a one-year-old, Beckett, and uh, he was... Um, listed in daycare centers but there was no room he was on a wait list mm, right yeah and i could see how important it was to her so i said no problem nikki i'll just cancel the rwanda thing and i'll look after beckett so i became this uh, caregiver so i looked after her three children while she went to school was that a was that a bit of a, a shock Having, I mean, you'd raised kids before, but it'd been yeah. a while since you'd had yeah. a little one, right? That you had to take care of all the time. Was that a bit of a, an adjustment? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, my youngest is uh, just about to turn 11, and I still feel like, man, if I was taking care of a baby every day, that would be a bit of a shock for me, and it's only been, yeah. you know, not that long, so... Yeah. Well, Beckett, Beckett was one. That's right. You know, I was changing his diapers, giving him his oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's one thing to have your grandkids come and, you know, visit. It's another thing yeah. to be in charge of a baby every yeah. day, all day long. Yeah, for sure. So, of course, I have a very special bond with him, you know. Well, yeah, of course. And, yeah. and he's at university now, actually, in Hamilton. Yeah. So, anyway, um, I volunteered. There was an organization in London that uh, was made connections for people. So, I went there and I said, look, I got some time. Um, I'm interested in volunteering. What have you got? You know, and they said, "Well, the Northwest London Resource Centre is looking for volunteers." So I went there, and uh, I walked in there, and the executive director 
was this lady called Candace Whitlock, who became my partner. So how old were you at that time then? 64. 64, okay. Yep. Anyway, cut long story short, uh, I came on, I, I went on the board at the North West London Resource Centre. I, I went on as treasurer, I became the chairman, and then um, Nikki, uh, she'd finished her schooling. I said, okay, what else have you got? So they were going to send me to Indonesia, to an island called Flores. So I was all set to go to Flores. I resigned from the board. Mm -hmm. Candace invited me as a guest to a wedding of a friend of theirs. And that was our first date, if you like. Yeah. Anyway, Candace liked what I what I'd done in Dhaka in Bangladesh, mm -hmm. and uh, she's a very special woman. And she said, "Well, that's what I want to do." She sold her house. She sold up everything, and she joined me. Wow. And we went to Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica, for a year. Yeah. Same thing. She got a position. I got a position. Yeah. She was working with the youth, and yeah. And then we went to Guyana for a year. Same thing. Yeah. And when we came back to Canada, you know, we were homeless people, right? Because you'd sold everything and gone. Yeah, yeah, so we used to just move in with our kids, you know. And we thought, well, that's, that's not right. You can't just sh show up. And, and so, well, how long are you going to be home, Dad? I said, I don't know. I said, till I get another assignment. So we decided it's, this isn't fair, you know. Mm -hmm. So we decided to go backpacking. More adventure, right? <laughs> so we went to Central America for four months. Yeah. A little backpacked. Weighed 20 pounds. Shows you how little you need. You know, you roll up your T-shirts, roll up your underwear. That's oh, all. Oh, yeah, yep. You, the rolling is the trick. That's the way oh, to do yeah, it. Yep. Yeah, oh, yeah. You just stick it all in, one on top of the other. Right? My wife and I did a two-week trip to Italy a few years ago for our Whoa. anniversary and and we oh. only took carry-on bags for a two-week trip and so we had to do the rolling and we had to really say okay yeah. what do we actually need to take we don't need nearly as much as we think we do you know no. so no. yeah it was great oh yeah I bet you gonna go again somewhere um so for sure so that was our 15th anniversary and this year was our 20th and we actually did a two-week trip to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park down Tennessee and North Carolina in that yeah. this year. So that was that Beautiful. was good too. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We like to hike and, you know, go do adventures and stuff. And <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so anyway, we, we spent four months yeah. just backpacking. It was just a backpack. It wasn't even a rolly or anything. And where were, you, where were you backpacking at? Well, we flew to San Jose, Costa Rica. Okay. Then yeah. we went into Panama. Okay. And then we went into Nicaragua. So we were four months, yeah. And then when I was in the north of Nicaragua, this opportunity to go to Guyana on an assignment for a year came up. So we came back to Canada, went to Guyana, did our one year assignments in Georgetown, Guyana. When that was up, came back to Canada and then we went to Southeast Asia. So we went through, <laughs> yeah, really weird. Yeah, you're racking up the frequent flyer miles here. <laughs> so where in Southeast Asia did you go? Well, we flew, first of all, to Bangkok. And the in intention was to spend the first month in Thailand. But man, it was raining so hard when we got to Bangkok. And they said, it's going to be like this all week. So we just went down the aisle at the airport, looking at regional airlines, what's cheap. And there's a really cheap flight to Denpasar, Bali. Okay. So we took mm -hmm. that. So our first yeah. month was in Bali. Second month we were in Vietnam, then we were in Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and we came home. Wow. It's quite the adventure. Oh yeah. But all the time <laughs> we were writing too, Scott. Right. Yeah, right. You've got some books, right? Yeah. 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 When I went, let's go right back. When I went to Lutso Cay, yeah. My daughter, who's um, Be Beckett, I looked after. Huh? When I went to Lutz OK, she gave me this really nice leather journal. I said, I want you to write in this, Dad, because we know it's going to be really strange up there. You know, we want to know what it's like. So I 
wrote in the journal, basically out of a sense of obligation, because <laughs> sure. I, I knew yeah. Nicky would be saying, how's the writing coming down? And I didn't want to say, oh, I'll, I'll get around to it. So I started writing. But there was so much happening, Scott. So much happening. I was writing. Right? Every night I was writing. Well, it didn't take me long to finish the journal. And then I was writing in notebooks. So when I, when I left after two years, I had like eight notebooks. And I thought, man, I can't just turn these over and say, here you go, Nicky. This is what you wanted. I thought, you know. Yeah, have fun well, reading all they're this. They're not readable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because so yeah. then she's going to read it. You were writing out of obligation, and she's going to read it out of obligation. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, I was reading, I was writing uh, every night, you know, on an actual basis in real time. Yeah, so that ends up being a lot of stuff, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was on 350,000 words or something. Yeah. So, so, so you cut it down and turned it into a book then? or Well, what it, what it is, when I came out of there, I thought, okay. I, I got to condense this into something readable, you know. So I thought what I'll do is I'll, I'll take a month. I'll go to a place in the world somewhere. So I went to a little place called Coweta. Where's that at? South part of Cost, Costa Rica on the border okay. with Panama. Sure, I just yep. picked it out. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, just, just I don't randomly? Know. or Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what made me pick it out. But I got a nice guest cabin for a month. I went in there with my computer, and every day I just typed all the stuff into Word. So once it was all into Word, I started to, you know, reread it, and I thought a lot of stuff didn't go anywhere. So I deleted it. I realized, man, you know, I I got to condense this, you know, to maybe a hundred thousand words, not three fifty. So I got to get rid of stuff. But there was there was little bits that was part of a story that led somewhere, you know, there was developments going on. So I kept those bits and got rid of the other bits. But the weird thing, what happened, Scott, as I was doing this, I realized I, I had changed over the two years. It's weird. Oh, sure, yeah. Because in the very beginning, when people came to me and said, can you, uh, like I would write, yeah, Joe came to see me today. He asked me, could I help him? I told him no. I said, I'm not, I'm not your personal counselor, you know. I'm a businessman. Right. That's, Leave that's me alone. not my job. Go away. <laughs> yeah. And then after two years, it's like, hi, Joe, how can I help you today? Because I realized, you know, working with people, and they've been so friendly to me. And mm-hmm. what I realized, Scott, was uh, the joy of community. 300 people. So you haven't got, you haven't got subdivisions. It looks okay. Yeah, you just got one. And it's just one big community with a community hall. And by necessity, they all do things as a community. And I realized I don't have that. I never had, in in Canada, we're all alone. You know, I come out, I say hi to my neighbor, go to work. And he's never in my house. Well, when you had 50 acres, you didn't even say hi to a neighbor because you probably never saw a neighbor. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've I've got two acres here, and I still feel like I I hardly ever see a neighbor, you know. But Iowa, it was lovely, eh? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that book, that that journal, yeah. as I I got rid of everything, right? So I got it down to a story about the what happened to me when I went to Lutzoke, and when I flew out. I called that book "White Man on the Land." <laughs> nice, and, and and I and I and I gave it to people to read, and they really thought it was really interesting. But they said, you know, it, it it the reader is left wanting to know more about who was this man that went to Lutzoke and what did he do afterwards with his newfound knowledge? Right, you know? you're just getting a little snippet of yeah. all of that life, yeah. So I carried on writing. So I kept a journal when I went to Bangladesh. Anyway, cut a long story short. We we were thinking about a lot of people. They retire. And we knew a lot of people, you know. And they said, wow, you know, you must be so brave and courageous. I thought, well, you know, no. They just retire and play golf, you know. And that's fine. But we thought, it's good to, the world needs volunteers. We need people to share. And especially retirees, I mean, they got a whole lifetime 
of acquiring skills and knowledge? You've got lots of skills. You've got lots of experience. You've got the time to invest in things. You've got, I mean, I'm assuming since you had 50 acres with five ponds and all this stuff, you had the money to be able to, <laughs> you know, invest the time. But it was, ne it was never about the money. It was well, never right, about but the I mean, money. Yeah. But if you, uh, you, you know, yeah, you were, you were able to go do these things and not necessarily need to keep working for a salary like you had been for years or whatever. Yeah, so. Yeah. So we decided to write this book to um, encourage retirees to consider volunteering. Not, not in Bangladesh, but even in their local communities, you know. Yeah. So my dad actually is retired, and uh -huh. one of the things he does is he, I think three days a week, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, he goes and drives a truck and picks up, they go to the grocery stores and the Walmart, and they pick up all of the old food that they're going to throw away, and then they deliver it to food banks and these oh, kind of places. Oh, man, that's wonderful. So he's helping you know, supply the food banks and get rid of some of the food waste. And I mean, that's like three days a week. He spends, I don't know, a couple hours. I'll call him sometimes and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm out driving around making my pickups. What do you need? You know? But you know, I bet you he feels so fulfilled doing that. He probably enjoys just knowing that he's helping. And again, the connections with people as well as helping, you know, he's got yeah. the other the other guys that do the deliveries with them. And I'm sure it's the same people a lot of times at the places where he's picking up and dropping off. And, yeah. you know, he's making those connections with people as well. Yeah. And helping his community. I think it's getting better, Scott. I think more and more people are volunteering now. But at one time, I know they were really, everybody was crying out for volunteers. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so that's why, so we wrote this book, it's called Go For It. It's true. I like it. <laughs> I like the title, yeah. So far, you're two for two on titles, I think. <laughs> Volunteering Adventures on Roads Less Traveled. And they, nice. I mean, well, a lot of people have read the book and find them really, really interesting. Because, you know, um, we had a very minimalist view of the world, Um almost Buddhist type, you know, we just unconditionally accept what happens. We don't get upset. It's, if it happens, it happens. And there were, you know, lots of sort of little wrinkles. Of uh, course, I mean. Yeah, we just moved on, you know. Yeah. I mean, what can, what can you do? You just got to adapt and just, I mean, you can't sit and whine and complain about the thing that didn't work. That doesn't get you anywhere, right? I know, but most people's reaction is to all of me immediately blame. Oh yeah, you you blame somebody, and then why me, and then uh, you know. But it's no good bringing negative emotions into it. It doesn't change anything. You you just hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. Anyway, for a while there, what we did is when we got back from our backpacking, we decided we we put these little uh, PowerPoint shows on. And we, we we became entertainers. So we went to retirement homes, community centers, sharing our journeys, our books. And it was a way to sell our books too. So we did that for about five years. So when I came back, I started to write in 2016 a novel that was been in my head based on early childhood memories because I realized the world had changed a lot since I was a kid, you know, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I grew up in Bolton, Lancashire, there was World War II vets with the PTSD, shell shock. Right. And there was no mental health help, you know. They just wandered the streets, they were crazy. Kids were frightened of them because they were so weird, you know, stuff like that. Anyway, I started writing a book but January 2019, Christmas, over Christmas, I was having trouble breathing. I was gasping for air. I'd been a, a pack-a-day smoker all my life. Oh, yeah. And I just figured I had lung cancer, and I thought, that's the way I'm going to die, you know. Because I was really addicted. I, I tried to quit, never could, and I just... I thought, well, you know... 
I'm 75, had a good life. And uh, I thought, well, no, as I say, I accepted what was, I thought, you know. No sense blaming, right? <laughs> no, no, I just blame myself. Like we said, just, you just yeah. accept. So it's put on oxygen immediately, 24-7, oxygen unit in my bedroom. I went to bed with a cannula up my nose. 24-7, I had to breathe in this oxygen, you know. Yeah. And... Um, what it was, I was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, not lung cancer. I was surprised. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with all the smoking, you would just assume that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's got a high morbidity. Uh, from the onset, you've got three to five years. So I said, you know, well, what have I got? Like, you know, have I got three years? I got a five years? It makes a big difference because there's things I want to do, you know? Right. And they said, well, unfortunately, Al, in your case, the fibrosis is quite advanced. You're looking at 18 months tops. Oh, wow. And this is January 2019. So this this gave me like So spoiler best... alert, it's been more than 18 months now, and you're talking to us still. <laughs> well, that was a best before date, right, of June right, 2020. Right, right, right. So I thought, okay, what do you want to do? Well, there's one thing I wanted to do was to go back to England, say goodbye to my sister, my nieces, nephews, all my family, because I came out by myself. So they're all in England, France. They all came up. So I went back to England with Candice, my three children, and three of my grandchildren. So there was eight of us, and we went back for two weeks. So it was wonderful. Came back to Canada. But at this time, you know, um, I realized my fibrosis is progressing because I used to be on three liters a minute, then it went to five, now seven, eight, nine, ten, you know. And I could see the six months coming up, you know. And I went through this mindset, it's really weird, you know, last Christmas, last Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. last time I, I visit these people, all these lasts, but I was savoring them, knowing that they're, they're my last, you know. And it was weird. In, in a way, I was joyful about it, because I just thought, well, at least I know. It'd be terrible if you were just knocked down by a truck or something and, you know, sure. departed this earth. So it gave me time to prepare, to say goodbye, and I was going through the process. Uh, I was in charge, if you like. Mm-hmm. So I accepted this reality uh, with my Buddhist philosophy, you know, uh, unconditional acceptance. But my children didn't. They didn't share. <laughs> right. They said, no, Dad, right. that's, that's not acceptable. How about a transplant? Well, I'd never, the doctor never mentioned a transplant, the possibility. So I, I, I asked him, I said, well, what about a transplant? He said, well, you know, you're over the age of 70. Usually they don't right. do transplants because people over the age of 70 have other issues. Right, and it doesn't make sense to... To, to go through the process of doing a transplant and if it's not going to extend their life that much more, right? Well, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be eligible. Like if I had prostate cancer, any, any form of cancer, psh, I'm not eligible. Right. And if I had any heart problems, so I had to have an angioplasty. This is where they put a thing and it goes all the way into your heart and it's measured. I got a graphic. It's, it's wonderful. It shows you the bloodstream and where there's little bumps but hey everything was fine so amazing so i was eligible so i went on the the wait list in june july i got a call they said come in we have some lungs so went up the two hours to toronto went in there got prepped and then they said unfortunately the lungs just aren't good enough so you have to go home same thing happened in August. And the same thing happened again in September. Oh, no. So I went in there, got prepped, and uh, they said, yeah, no, everything looks good. The surgery will be at 4.30 in the morning. So have a good sleep. We'll, we'll come in and wake you up. Well, at 3 o'clock, they came in and they said, sorry, but the lungs just aren't good enough. So you'll be going home again, okay? So go back to sleep. <laughs> So when I woke up in the morning, I'm getting dressed, ready to come home. Candace was at a hotel. She came over and we're, 
and then they say, wait, some new, some more lungs just shown up. And they look promising. It's like we found some long, spare lungs yeah, in the back can, or something. Can, can, <laughs> can you hang on for an hour while we check them out? I said, well, sure. I'm not going well, anywhere, you know. I'll be here all day if you need me to be. I mean, so they sure. came back and said, everything's great. 4.30 this afternoon, you go into the operating theater. So in September 2020... Went into hospital, came out with my new lungs. That's over three years which is, ago. Which is kind of a crazy time to be going to hospital and getting a procedure done too, right? During COVID, yeah, that's... Yeah. So two new lungs, right? Double double lung oh, transplant? Really? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, here I am. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, any further issues? Has it been good? You don't... I mean, you're not using oxygen, I see, so... Oh, God, no, no. No, everything's yeah. All good? Yeah. Yeah. Was it was it like an immediate, you know, just like totally better right away? Was there kind of a gradual thing, or how how quickly does that? Yes, yeah, really. Well, you know, so I it was a twelve hour operation. They do one lung at a time. Hmm? Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think of that twelve hours. Man, that's a long shift for all those all that long time. Those yeah, people in the operating theater there. You know. Anyway, um, I was in ICU for two days. Okay, and then you come out and you're in step down because you got these tubes, all these you have to drain everything because they they break the uh, sternum, yeah, the sternum. Take out your old lungs, <laughs> put your new lungs in, you know, connect everything just like a plumber, you know. Isn't that, isn't it amazing tubes. that they can do that? I mean, I know, I just I, yeah, there's arteries and all sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah, there's so many little intricate things. Oh, yeah. I know. You think working on a car is difficult? I, <laughs> I can't imagine. So then I was in a thing called step-down, and that's like a... Anyway, after step-down, they take the tubes out, and um, so now I'm in a regular ward, but now i got to start walking around, you know, with the IV. Yeah, get some exercise. And um, six days later... They discharged me. I was so surprised. And they said, no, hospitals are for sick people. You're not sick. (laughs) (laughs) We're all full of germs and viruses here. You know, go home. Right. We're we're safe. Wow, amazing. And that's been a few years ago now, right? Three. Three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. You know, it's interesting. One of our previous episodes um, that we did, we talked about um, what would the world be like if extra lives were a real thing, like they are in video games, how you can earn an extra life, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of what happened to you. You kind of, I mean, you were doing your, your last Christmas and you're like, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah, you were, you kind of got an extra life now. Yeah. Uh, uh, on so many levels, too, Scott. As I say, I started writing this book. Yeah. But I stopped writing because uh, what's the point, you know? Number one, I can't finish it, I don't have time to finish it and publish it and all that, you know. I just thought, well, it's, it's, you know. But then I started writing again, so I was able to finish my book. Mm-hmm. And it's on Amazon, and it's published. People are reading it. I think, well, that wouldn't have come into existence had I not had the transplant. You know, it wouldn't have a life of its own. And, of course, yeah. you know, from the, the, the Christian perspective, we might say, you're, you know, there was more that you needed to do. You still, you weren't, uh, your time wasn't up yet, right? Well, I believe that in a way, but, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm not a Christian. Yeah, different way than me, I understand. Yeah. yeah, just a different aspect, yeah. I still believe that I was given the gift of life yep. to do something with. So I, I, I'm an advocate for, so in Canada, I don't know about in the States, in Ontario, every three days, somebody dies on the wait list because there's just not enough organs being right donated. which is which is why they don't give them to people that have other complications yeah, exactly. of course because it's not if we had a room full of extra lungs in the back then they just give them to everybody <laughs> that needed them but but yeah because yeah. they're limited that's the problem yeah 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 and not enough people in can in canada um you have to register to donate your organs and tissues otherwise mm-hmm. they what they won't take your organs and tissues it's the same way here in the United States, yeah. 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 In fact, when you get your driver's license, you say whether you want to be an organ donor, and then they put that yeah. on there. 
Well, that used to be, but it didn't really work, Scott. I mean, what what we have is a, as we, we've gone digital. It's a beardonor.ca. Sure, sure. We want people to go up and register because now it's on their regi- on their health. Because what happens in a traffic accident, they race everybody in, you're in the operating room, they know who the person is, but man, maybe they can't find a driver's license. Sure, you know, right, and that makes sense. Well, and I, I'm sure that the, the information is probably online as well for us. Um, I'm sure they have an electronic record yeah. of that somewhere, you know, but yeah. But what's, the, what's your, web, say that website again? It's called beadonor.ca, Canada. Beadonor.ca. Okay. Well, I'll include a link to that in the the show notes, so people should go to that and check that out. Yeah, Yeah, I could send you that too. So what I'm doing, I'm an advocate to encourage people. Now, in Canada, a lot of younger people don't register, and I'm sure it's the same in the States, because they don't think they're going to die, right? Right, right. That's something for for old people that are going to die. Oh, yeah, Yeah. but but, uh, there's also this, uh, I'm not going to attract death. By signing right, right. An organ donor I've heard card. people say that uh, I don't believe this, but I've heard people say that oh, you shouldn't sign up to be an organ donor because they're not going to try as hard to save you if they yeah, know you're an exactly. organ donor. Okay, no, that's, I know. that's bogus. And you got these myths. So what? What, um, what, what we're doing? The Toronto General Hospital is the only hospital in Ontario. There's five in Canada that do lung transplants. Other hospitals do kidney, you know, pancreas, liver, different things. Sure. But Toronto General Hospital, they've, it's a one-hour show. It's a Zoom link to schools, Mm. to grade Mm -hmm. 12 schools all over Ontario. So a doctor or a nurse does the first half hour about the importance of organ tissue donation and uh, dispelling all the, all of these myths, you know, like you mentioned, you know, and then the other half is me, and I come on to uh, to with my transplant journey, and to inspire people to say, look, had somebody not signed that card, that register, I wouldn't be here, and I wouldn't yeah. have written my book, and I wouldn't be, you know, just to try to uh, inspire people to motivate them to sign yeah yeah you wouldn't be here and you wouldn't be able to tell people to then sign up to help more no. people you know like it's a circle there you got you yeah. wouldn't have been here to tell people to sign up to help other people that wouldn't then yeah. be here yeah and i wouldn't be doing this podcast with my right. sharing my my books and my experience my life experiences you know and that's really interesting because i've been on a lot of different podcasts all with different themes. Well, and this wasn't what I was planning on talking about no. today, but this has been great. It's very interesting. I was I was actually uh, kind of thinking about what we should talk about and with the oh. other... Well, there was originally going to be two other people on here, and then one yeah. couldn't make it, and then I don't know what happened to the other one. And, and I was originally thinking about it, and I thought in my head, man... It'd almost be good just to just to let Alistair tell his story because it sounds so interesting. So yeah. it kind of worked out. I was kind of thinking yeah. that would be good, anyways. But yeah, but you know, it's amazing, Scott. I can go back to when I was cutting grass and saying, "Is this it? Is this all I want to do?" And people were saying, "You've got it made. You know, look, you go for three times a week. God, that's why we work all our lives to do that." You know, right? And I'm sure you were when you got to retirement. Were you thinking, "Oh, this isn't going to be great"? I'm. Were you like, "Yes, I've been oh, doing yeah. all this work oh, for oh, years. Absolutely. Now I'm getting to where I'm going for." Absolutely. Yeah, you. I'm sure you weren't. I know some people when they're retiring, they're like, "Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do," and they're unsure. But I, yeah. I get the impression you thought this was okay. I'm. I'm on to the next stage. I'm going to relax and golf. And I bought into that whole thing about being successful. Right. And being successful was working your ass off, putting money away, retiring early, and then reaping your reward. I mean, when you first retired, you probably enjoyed it for a while. Oh, your 50 I did. acres and I your did. ponds and your golfing. Oh, yeah. So how long did it take before you kind of thought, well, this has been fun. About but... two years. Yeah. <laughs> About two years, yeah. About two yeah. years. Yeah. It's kind of like a long vacation and you start thinking, okay, well, this yeah, has been exactly. great. But I got to get back to the real world now, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I didn't feel part of the real world because I'd been such a high achiever. I thought, you know, 
I worked all my life. I got all this skills and experience. Like, for what? To play golf? I mean, I, yeah, I'm not using it. What a waste. And I felt unfulfilled, you know. So the thing was, I started to realize that, you know, what I really wanted to, to, to be in life was to be happy, not successful. And the weird thing was, Scott, on a number of occasions, so when I went to Lutzukei, you know, I saw those people, they just live in the moment, they're happy. Mm -hmm. And when I went to Bangladesh, I mean, man, 170 million people, people everywhere. Oh, it's teeming with people. Oh, and yet, people are whistling, they're singing, and how can this be? How can they be happy when they got nothing? And the real key thing was one time I was in a public washroom in Dakar, and these public washrooms are so gross. Oh man, they're all concrete, everything's concrete. Smell to high heaven. And there was a guy there with a mop, mopping the floor, and he was whistling. And I thought, yeah, how can he whistle? He must be insane, right? <laughs> yeah. And I realized he has a job. Yeah. And they just accept what is. In, in North America, right from the get-go, we're told to be competitive, to win, compete, be the first. Yeah? It's all about... And I, I, I bought into that. So that's what I realized. You know, happiness is a state of mind. It, it, you don't, it's not what you have. It's how... You, and, and those people just accept reality. And community is very big for them. That's where they get the happiness from. The brothers, the sisters, the the older, you know, grandparents are looking after the babies. The grandparents aren't in retirement residences. <laughs> They're looking after the babies. There's not enough money, right? But it, it makes for a nice family cohesive unit. And I thought, you know, we miss out on that because we don't have a sense of community in, in my world anyway, back in Ontario. Yeah. Yeah. So I I had lots of, you know, aha moments like that, realizing things about life. Yeah. And, it, and it took you, you know, it took you a long time to realize that. But, you know, if you hadn't done all that hard work and then retired and had that revelation, would you have ever learned that? No. You know what I no. mean? Like you kind of had to do the wrong thing in order to learn what the right thing was, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, your whole life is interconnected, eh? And yeah. I don't oh, regret sure. anything because had anything been different, the rest of it wouldn't have been. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't have happened the way it did. So you've just got to be thankful that everything happened to, to get you to this point where you well, are. And all of your experiences as an accountant and in the you know world probably helped you a lot with being able to then you know, help the people in the, uh, the First oh, Nations absolutely. community and the, the microloans thing and the other places. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure all of your experience then made you better able to help people in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of, so I'm, you know, I haven't had as much experience as you. I'm sure all th things will change for me as I get older too. That's but, right. You've got lots of years left. Right. I still got lots to learn too. But, you know, I went, to, so I went to school for engineering. I have an engineering degree. And then I never worked as an engineer. No. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't get a job as an engineer in the, the town we were living in. And I was working temp jobs. And I went back to school at nights and got a paralegal degree. And I did that for a few years. And then when we moved, um, it just didn't work out for me to do that job. And so I now have these two degrees. And I'm, I'm working part-time as the worship leader at a church. Uh, and, you know, doing the YouTube and the podcast. And I'm not doing anything related to my degrees. Isn't that funny? But, but all that stuff that I learned, you know, engineering stuff, but also just how to learn, right? Like, I had to learn how to learn by going to college. That's part of it. And, and all the stuff that I learned from the actual engineering classes, paralegal classes, how to write briefs, how to do these things, has then helped me be successful in these other things that I'm doing now even though they're not really related, so. No, but you take it all with you, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, nothing is a waste of time. Everything is experience, you know. Right. Yep. Yeah, I say I have two degrees that I'm not using, but I kind of am. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm using all of the stuff that I learned. And it's yeah. amazing, Legend Life, I'm sure, 
other opportunities will pop up and you'll you'll say oh yeah i can use that you know like when we were in uh, when we were in guiana i was working with 10 young people it was called the young Le young leaders of agricola agricola was a little town outside georgetown very troubled damaged community and uh, i was working with these 10 people from 16 to about 22 but they were in school or they they were in work you know they were working but my volunteer sending organization said we don't want you going in there at night in fact taxi drivers would go to the outskirts they wouldn't go in they dropped you off you know it was so but i went in because um i forget his name now <laughs> anyway I, the first time i went there he, he, he took me around town and he introduced me to everybody and he said this is alistair he's come to help us and we want you to look out for him okay so i felt comfortable after that i didn't have a problem but my volunteer sending organization said no no you you can't go in there and they were thinking about liability you can't go oh, yeah, anyway sure. cut long cut long story short i finished my assignment which was uh, 10 months no nine months and um candace was still working on her 12 month so i was an accompanying partner and then another opportunity came up to go into the amazon rainforest to teach people what happened was there was four eco lodges in the rainforest and they'd all been given computers <laughs> some organization somewhere had come up with computers and it was loaded they were all loaded microsoft word was on there microsoft office but nobody has shown them how to do anything right no, you can't just give someone a computer they gotta know how to use it yeah yeah so that was that project but now they needed somebody to go in for four days and do a little bit of training on word and excel so i had that background so i got the opportunity to do this most wonderful exciting adventure in the rainforest but as you say you know you take it with you and you never know when you're going to yeah, use it. Yeah, you never it. know what when something's going to come in handy later for sure. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Well, I mean, you basically spent a lifetime learning and getting experience and now you're spending another lifetime using all those <laughs> experiences yeah, and, and, and sharing, you know. Yeah, trying yeah. to make the world a better place. You know, happiness is something every single one of us on the planet want. That's what we need. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be successful. We want to be happy. If success leads to happiness, wonderful. But so I looked at all these people in Bangladesh, you know, with no aspirations. They were a rickshaw operator, you know, they went home from work and uh, they were happy with their family. There was no um, expectation of more. And I yeah. find in my world, it's always about it's never enough. It's sad, but it's never enough. And you, you know, you leave the woods and you can look at the forest as a you know as a unit. And, and I was comparing my culture to their culture, you know, different values, worldviews. It'd be interesting to take someone from their culture, have them come and experience yours, and see what things they learn from your culture, right? I mean, you're learning these things going to their culture, but it's not because necessarily theirs is great and yours is bad, right? There's probably things they can learn from your culture as well. It'd be interesting to know the well, other direction. In Canada, Scott, we have, um, like a, some of the Inuit and the North American Indians, they do come to the city, but a high proportion of them can't cope yeah. And they turn to drugs and the homeless and everything. It's just they're too stressed out, you know. They they just can't. I mean, we condition people, our children, from babies, you know. So they grow up in this world. It's their own reality. But when you come in from a different reality, oh yeah, it's hard no. to adapt. And that's in some ways that's one of the things that you probably did learn um, growing up in the culture that you did and working in the is the ability to adapt and adjust oh, to a new situation, mm -hmm. right? Like you said, the people in that community that just, they wake up that day and what am I going to do today? Yeah. And 
they're not adapting to to a big change, right? They're not necessarily uh, it's conditioned to adapt yeah. <laughs> and adjust their world. Well, that's the thing. It looks world, okay. So. You know, there's no Walmart. There's no uh, Home Depot or Lowe's. Right, right. They all fish. Lots of fish. Caribou. And, you know, so they eat a lot of wild meat. A lot of berries. Cranberries. Blueberries. You know. I mean, uh, 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 they've got money. I mean, they do order groceries. They do go to the co-op and get stuff. But they're not as... But it's not, not like as, what we think of as... Yeah, no, it's more minimalist. Yeah. yeah, it's more minimalist. And and when I learned to be minimalist, I realized, you know, less is more. It really is. Um, because when I sold up everything, I felt so light and free. I didn't need all that stuff, you know. I mean, I had 50 acres, but man, I was on the tractor for about three or four days a week cutting the grass, you know. Like, for yeah. what? Why? Right. I was so much, there's better ways to spend your time. That was the thing. But when I was looking at it before that, I thought, well, that's wonderful, you know. 50 acres and a river and all this. It's just a lot of work. For what? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I mean, I, thank you so much for telling us your story. This was very interesting. Um, I think I learned a lot. Um, you you learned a lot. That's the whole point of your story, right? Is that you learned a lot. So, yeah. yeah. And and your website is just your name, AlistairHenry.com. Is that right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So I'll put a link to to your website in the show notes as well, so people can find out that. And then, and I'm sure links to all your books are on your site there. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. If people go there, they can find all that. And, and they can read about all organ donation. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing with us. I appreciate it. My it, was, pleasure. it wasn't what we were expecting. Thank you for being adaptable and adjusting to what we were... It was meant to be, Scott. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. Because this yeah. is actually the second time that we had people cancel when you were supposed to be on with them. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess it was supposed to be this way. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks. Go have okay. a good lunch. And I'll Thank you. talk to you again. Bye-bye. Bye. And these public washrooms are so gross. Oh, man. Smell to high heaven. And there was a guy there with a mop, mopping the floor. 12 hours, man. That's a long shift. And he was whistling. I was so surprised. And they said, no, we're all full of germs and viruses here. You know, go home. We're, we're safe. <laughs>